we are celebrating Advent, if you didn't pick up on that. Uh, Advent comes from the Latin word that means to come. So it's Latin. If you didn't know, you know some Latin, you do. Advent, uh, it's a celebration of a specific coming, and that's why all the songs are about the arrival of Jesus. Advent is a season for the church. It's a season really for our nation, the waiting on Christmas to come. But for the church and for the people of God historically, it's been waiting on our Savior. And so there's been prophecy throughout the Old Testament as the people of God waited for the the prophesied Messiah, the Deliverer, to come. They saw signs of it. They saw images of it. They heard the promise of it. And finally, he came. The first advent. Jesus showed up. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. And the church today, we want to slow down things a little bit because the busyness of the season, we want to slow down and remember his coming. Remember that he, he came and, and try to get our minds around the incarnated deity. This is the God of all creation, the king of kings, the Lord of everything, the one who knows no boundaries. He's a baby boy, a human. He stepped down from his throne, commissioned to come after us, to fulfill the will of his father. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a baby. And we celebrate that every year by putting up a tree, waiting for this big, fat, hairy guy to come down our chimney, exchanging gifts, singing some songs, eating figgy pudding. Does anybody eat figgy pudding? I don't know if that... It's in a song, so I just figured. Watching Elf or Jingle All the Way or whatever your Christmas favorite is. We celebrate a lot of things, the fun, the fun of the season. And we as a church, we just want to slow down. Enjoy those things. It's good stuff. Have some eggnog if you like it. But let's remember Jesus. He came. Our Savior showed up. And not only did he come, but now we are waiting on his return, the second advent. He's coming again. And we have hope. Last week we talked about hope. There's these themes of advent, and we're observing each of those for the weeks of this month. And last week we talked about hope. Today we're going to talk about a very peculiar thing, something that we have, something that's with us, something that comes at, through us. And it's it's been kind of an adventure this week for me, studying the complexities of this thing called peace. We, we are going to try and understand what the Bible has to say about peace, and I'm going to ask you to reorient your hearts and prepare your minds to engage God's truth in this way, that we would see we have a hope for a better future, one of complete and total peace. But somehow we also have peace here and now. In this waiting, we have peace, a confidence, a freedom to rest assured, an understanding that though things may seem to be falling to pieces, someone is holding them together. Our peace is Jesus. Everything's going to be all right because Jesus came and he for sure will come again. So we somehow know that the war has been won even though we still fight battles every day. And not only has the war been won, but the spoils of victory, all that belonged to the enemy, or so he thought belonged to him, belongs to us. Not not only are we free from, from 
all, all the, the sin that is affecting us day in, day out, eventually, the power of it, the power, we're free from the power, but eventually we're going to be free from the presence of sin altogether. And we'll be in the glory of God forever. So we wish peace on people. We often say things like, go in peace. In fact, we, we often end our worship gathering by charging you with some, something to go and do and then we tell you, go in peace, because that's the charge that the Apostle Paul often gives. He also begins his letters to the church by saying things like grace and peace to you. It seems like peace is important, and certainly it's necessary. I think kind of intuitively, if we just try to feel what is peace, if we just think about what peace is, I, I think intuitively we see it as the, the absence of conflict, the absence of suffering where there's a relief of tension, where you can rest, a calm. There's no war. We're at peace. And that is what it is. But the Bible speaks of it in, in some different terms that leads us to know that it's not just the absence of something, but it's the presence of something. The Old Testament, the Hebrew word is shalom, a word you've probably heard before. Shalom is a word often translated peace, but it's not just peace. It's holistic well-being. It's welfare. It's you're completely right. Things were wrong, things were broken, and now they're together and they're right. It means whole or complete. I've heard the imagery uh, where the word shalom comes from, the imagery is a brick wall. And a brick wall that has every brick in its place. And every crack is filled. It's a complete wall. If there's any crack, if any brick is missing, it loses its integrity and there's no longer shalom. So the physical, emotional, spiritual well-being of a person and of a culture and of a community is shalom. And that's what we're after as a church. We desire to see that here for each and every individual. We desire to see that for the city of Monroe. We want to see shalom. We want to see things that are broken no longer be broken. And seeking shalom is about pushing back the darkness and righting the wrongs. We know sin has broken everything. Shalom is the reversal of those broken things. So it doesn't just mean the negative things are resolved. It's not just an end to the war, but it's a unity. It's the good. It's the joy. It's the love. It's filling in all the gaps with goodness. That's shalom. The biblical idea of peace is an ending to evil and the giving of good. It's the removal of oppression and the repairing of the broken. It's the ceasing of the war and the restoring the damaged and reviving the dead after the war is over. In the New Testament, this idea is continued and it's applied objectively and subjectively, the the vertical and the horizontal. It's reconciliation that accomplishes redemption and restoration. And for the individual, that's the case. And for the people of God, that's the case. And for all of creation, that's the case. Jesus came not just to save one person or two people. He came to save all of his people. And he didn't just come to save his people. He came to restore all of creation. And that's shalom. It's holistic. The prophet Isaiah, he said about this baby in the line of David, he will carry the government on his shoulders. This is from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. He says, he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Shalom. It's the name of Jesus. 
and the kingdom he establishes will be one of justice and righteousness where shalom has no end. This is, this is what all the people of God through the history of the world has known of Jesus. But if we're honest, we don't always feel it. Because life is hard. We have these concepts of peace, but it doesn't feel peaceful. I feel tension in my life. I feel conflict internally and externally all around me. I look at the news. I look at our, our city, the division, the brokenness. And it doesn't feel like peace. And this is, this is evidence of the fall. Baby Jesus, the prince of peace in the flesh, came to fix those things, to right those wrongs. The perfect, complete, sinless man, Jesus, would give up his perfection and be shamed and become sin to bring righteousness to the broken. Adam and every man who, who lived since him failed to be that holistic shalom. And so Jesus came as a baby to bring it. Born in the busyness of a census in this tiny backwoods town to people who were barely known by anyone. This, this guy engaged to this teenage girl who was pregnant but somehow a virgin. Everybody's questioning them. The tension, the conflict, the chaos in that family. They travel into the busyness of this city. There's nowhere for them to sleep. I want you to feel Joseph's anxiety right now. All he wants to do is provide for his family. He's obligated to be present in this city, to be a part of the census. There's nowhere for them to sleep. His wife is in labor. Feel the tension, the conflict. And so in a barn, behind an inn where it was, it was full of animals, so it probably smelled like and sounded like a barn full of animals. The Savior of the world, the one who's going to right all the wrongs, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus, the Creator, was born. And, it, and this little baby would hold the weight of the world on his shoulders. No government, no king, no ruler, no authority would ever be above him. He's the king of kings. So could you, could you see, like, imagine being in this space, looking at this baby. We couldn't possibly fathom who he actually is. And somehow it's known. Advent has happened. Hope has come. The peace has come. And Luke chapter 2 tells this story. And angels show up, and they show up, to these shepherds, these nobodies, these secondhand citizens, blue-collar guys in a field with the sheep and tell them what's just happened. And then it says in verse 13 and 14, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Peace has come. Despite all the tension and the craziness, peace has come. And then later, things take quite a turn when Jesus is older and he enters into ministry. He starts saying things to his followers that honestly are perplexing. <laughs> they kind of combat this idea of the Prince of Peace entering the world. He says things like, he explains, 
I won't be with you forever. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be calm following Jesus. He's, he talks about it being, he, it's going to be like being a sheep among wolves. He tells them they'll have to deny themselves and pick up their cross and proactively sacrifice. That's what their life's going to feel like. It's not going to feel like peace. He's, he mentions Satan will seek to destroy them. He, he, he's going to steal from you. He's going to kill you. He's going to destroy you. He says to them, the world will hate you. And the evidence of that is how much they hate me. So just watch and see how they treat me. Watch and see what they do to me. This is what it's going to be like for you. At one point, he even seems to directly oppose Luke chapter 2, the angels. In Matthew 10, 34, he says, don't assume I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is the Prince of Peace saying this. He goes on to talk about the division he brings is going to be between father and son, mother and daughter. He's going to divide households with this sword. It's going to wedge division. There's going to be tension. Do you feel that? There's going to be conflict. We're talking about the Prince of Peace, right? Here's the point. You can't have peace and still fellowship with the enemy can't have peace, can't have Jesus, and still have your sin. You can't belong to God and then still try to belong to those who continue to follow Satan. We need to understand the opposition so that we can understand peace. And, and I think it's more than just external. There's internal conflict here. So Galatians chapter 5 helps us with this. The flesh opposes the spirit. The conflict is, is about peace. It's about the presence of peace. It says in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the, the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Jump down to verse 22, the fruit of the spirit. So the evidence of the spirit in your life is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and on. But peace is evidence that the Spirit's in your life. Verse 24 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. They can't coexist. Kill it again and again and again. This is everyday crucifixion so that we can walk in the Spirit, so that we can have peace as a product, as a fruit of this Spirit-led life. So there's still conflict. All of this is to illustrate there's still conflict. The war continues to, to rage on. Though, as, as long as the desires of the flesh are present, fighting continues, we have peace if we crucify the flesh and walk in the Spirit. So as a side note, I just want to, this is a side note to this, because I want to flesh out the idea of peace. I often hear people say things like, I really have peace about it to make a decision. I really have peace about it. So why the answer to the question, why are you doing this thing? God really has given me a peace about it. Now, I'm not going to bash this idea, but I do want to point out not having peace is a problem. When you don't have peace about something, that's called conviction. That's the spirit leading you. So Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's God saying, if you have conviction, don't do it. 
because then it's sin. However, having peace about something isn't necessarily God's permission to do whatever you feel. It could just be your flesh, desiring what your flesh wants. So I, I, I offer this as a, as a warning because I think that people wrongly follow their flesh and they think it's peace. So I'm going to date my ex. Why? I don't know. I just really have such a peace about it. I know that it went really badly the first time. I know they don't love Jesus, but I have a peace about it. I think God's going to use it. Certainly, if it's to pursue sin, it's not right. But even things like if Google were to offer me a job and say, hey, we're going to pay you a million dollars a year to move to Southern California. You only have to work part time. We'll even fly your family out here. We have this company house we're going to let you live in. I think I would have such peace about that. (laughs) I'm just saying. I want to plant churches, but with that money, I can do whatever I want. There's lost people in L.A. I can do this. I would have such peace about that. I wouldn't even have to pray on it. God's giving me peace right away. It cannot be that simplistic. The mere absence of conflict doesn't equal peace. Don't be a fool. So if you don't have peace, don't do it. That's conviction. If you think you have peace, ask more questions. Is it sin? What does the Bible explicitly and implicitly say concerning this decision? How will God be glorified? Is it wise? Would an idiot do that thing? And if an idiot would do that thing, don't do that thing. Peace comes with knowledge, not with mystery. If you're going to find peace, it's going to be because you, you know. You don't necessarily understand, but you know what's true. You don't have to understand to have peace, but it comes with knowledge. So keep asking questions. Side note, over. An important distinction to make here, uh, this is a paraphrase of Tim Keller. He says, there's a difference between a a restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart. There's a difference between controlling, suppressing our natural self-centered, self-centeredness by willpower and having a permanently changed heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. He, He talks about this. Uh, when he's referring to this, this idea that we can manufacture fruit of the Spirit or we can actually produce fruit of the Spirit. If any one of these fruits are separate from the rest of them, it's not the fruit of the Spirit because it's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. So love, pa- love peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, and goodness, self-control. I think that's all of them. They, they coexist. If you're able to somehow appear to have peace but you're not loving, if you're able to appear to have peace but you don't have any self-control, like you get up and move to L.A. because God gave you peace? It's a lie. That's a manufactured fruit. That's not peace. So peace isn't necessarily the absence of conflict. In fact, sometimes peace exists with conflict. But peace also isn't just a feeling that seems good. Of course you have peace. You're satisfying your flesh in that case. So what is this peace? What is it then? Tell me what it's not. What is it? What does God-given peace actually look like? Finally, we're going to get to Romans. I told you we'd be in Romans chapter 5 for this month as we consider these these, uh, 
uh, pictures, these symbols, these themes of Advent. So Romans chapter 4, it, it talks about Abraham realizing the promise of God. And, and obviously we're, we're in the New Testament, so we see Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Abraham, just like all the Old Testament people of God, were, were gifted the righteousness of Christ even before Christ entered the world. They, they had it. It was theirs. It belonged to them. In verse 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 4, it says it, talking about the righteousness, will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses, so that killed for our sin and raised for our justification, the power to remove the guilt. We're declared righteous because of Jesus. And then in Romans chapter 5, we read all the way to verse 11 last week. This week, I'm, I want to highlight verse 1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, according to what Christ accomplished, we just read that, we have been declared righteous by faith, we have, some translations say, let us grasp that we have. Some manuscripts actually say, let, it should be translated, let's grasp what, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? How do we have peace with God? Righteousness by faith in Christ. Only the righteous get to have peace with God. Absolutely everyone else gets cut off by the sword. So are you righteous? You want peace? Are you righteous? Are you obedient? Are you following? Are you good? You might be like, nah, I'm a filthy sinner. Well, I'll remind you, verse 8, God proves his love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? That's peace. We're talking about being saved from the wrath of God. That's peace. Verse 10, for it, for if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? No longer at odds with God. The wrath has been removed. No longer at odds with God. We gain salvation. The absence of conflict, the absence of war, the absence of wrath, and the presence of our salvation, Jesus. Verse 11, and not only that but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So we get joy, too. That's for later. We're not going to get into joy. No longer an enemy with God, we're saved, and we have reason to rejoice. In fact, if you're not saved, if you still are under the wrath, if you haven't gained peace with God through righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, you're not going to want to be anywhere around him. You're certainly not going to rejoice in him. So what does it mean for us, and how does it affect our lives? We have, we have to find freedom from the conflict. We have to find freedom from the anxiety. We want to be fearless. We want to be content. Those are, those are the ideas of peace. Free from anxiety, free from conflict, fearlessness, contentment. That's peace. So when you get peace with God, you get peace in life. We have access to the source of all good things. We're able to rest. We're able to rejoice. That's how it affects your life. We're saved from something, and we're saved to something. So 
Once we have this peace, we then become administers of the peace. Once we've gained reconciliation, we then become ministers of that reconciliation. Paul gave us the theology for it here in Romans. And then in Philippians, he writes out how it works individually. So Philippians chapter 4, a passage that's very familiar to me because I constantly have anxiety and I worry. Philippians 4, starting in verse 6, says, Don't worry about anything. You can only tell someone who has peace with God that. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, because you know what's going to be answered, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what's the result? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Not just the absence, but the presence of being guarded by peace. And verse 8 talks about dwelling on the positive things. Think about the good things. And as a result of that, verse 9, Paul says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. So don't stress about these things. Don't worry about this stuff. Think on the good things. Follow what those faithfully who have gone before you, follow what they have done. And the God of peace will be with you. So I want to I capture what's going on here. We have peace with God. And because of that, we have the peace of God. We produce peace as the fruit of the Spirit. And the person of peace, the God of peace, is with us. If we live obedient lives, if we're righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, nothing disturbs the peace. You're complete. You're whole. Remember, that's the kind of peace we're talking about. Something that fills in the cracks. So whether you've got nothing for Christmas that you wanted, whether your family's cool or not at the dinner table, no, if you're not able to provide for those you love, you're not able to get them what, what you thought they wanted, you still have peace. When those you loved are no longer with you this season, when it's hard to even put the tree up because it's a reminder of the good times in the past that no longer exist. Or if you only have negative memories of Christmas, it's always gone badly. It's never been right. You can have peace because the God of peace is with you. Think on these good things. Follow in obedience. Trust. Have hope for peace. Paul goes on, verse 12 and 13, another common passage he says, I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. He's talking about peace here. The secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. The do all things he's talking about is about playing football. Right? I can make it. I'll just kneel on the sideline. I can make it. I'm talking about the Tim Tebow kneel, not the Colin Kaepernick, in case you were confused. It's not about football. The do all things is about the mission. The church in Philippi were trying to support Paul. They wanted him to be encouraged. They knew that he was living a rough life, getting locked up, getting beat, suffering for the gospel. And so they're providing for him, and he's grateful for it. So this letter, he's saying, I'm grateful for it, but just so you know, I was never anxious about it. 
I've never felt that I didn't have what I need because all he needs is God, the God of peace. And the same is true for them, and it's true for us. That's what he's writing about. It's like, I want you to understand, I I need stuff. I have needs. This is hard. There is reason for anxiety. There's a lot of conflict. Everyone's against me, but don't mistakenly think that I've been without peace because I've never been without it. He has been with me. And we have peace with God. We gain the peace of God and the presence of the God of peace when we follow this example Paul has set for us. Our lives are changed because of the vertical peace we have with God because of the righteousness of Christ. And then we produce peace in our lives and it lives out horizontally and we're peacemakers. And you know what? Blessed are the peacemakers. Our mission has to be about peace. Ministers of reconciliation having been reconciled to God And now we seek the shalom of our city. That's Jeremiah. Seek the shalom of your city, even though we're in Babylon. That's gospel work. And it's not, it doesn't mean passivity. So when your grandma's being racist at the table this Christmas, say something about it. Because that's pushing back darkness. When you see the people at Brookshire's ringing the bell, and you're like, I gave last time. I gave last time. Just give them another dollar. Put a quarter in your pocket every time and keep giving. Do every little thing to push back the darkness. Don't do it out of guilt or shame because they're going to judge you if you don't give. Push back the darkness and seek shalom for our city and do all that you can to give of yourself to recognize the way God has gifted you, put you in this body of believers, and we have purpose here. We're not just gathering to sing songs about the birth of Jesus. We're begging him to return, and we're gathering as the body of Christ with Christ as our head, seeking to bring peace as we have the peace of God with us. And as we walk in obedience, following the Spirit, as He leads us into all of this, certainly will produce peace. It's a fruit of the Spirit. In the upper room, Jesus warned His disciples that there was going to be a struggle to find peace in the world. He did a lot of things. This is, if you read John, I, I don't know what verse or chapter it starts in. It's okay to not know references. But John, in the book of John, Jesus is in the upper room, I'm going to guess, around chapter 13. 12? Somewhere in there. He washes the feet of his disciples. They break bread together. He knows crucifixion's coming. It's Passover now. And he's telling them a lot of stuff. He's, he's informing them, this is who I am. He's speaking very plainly, though he's spoken in parables before. He's saying, this is who I am. I'm this bread. I'm this cup. Judas, you're going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me. He's getting really real with his disciples right now. He puts a towel around them. He washes their feet and serves them as a demonstration of what it looks like to serve. And then he reaches this point where he says to them in chapter 14, verse 27 of John, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. He's telling them, you're going to need this because the world's not going to have it. He's telling them, you might be tempted to be troubled or afraid. You're going to feel anxious at times. He tells them, I'm leaving you in this world. He he then says the Holy Spirit's going to come. The Helper's going to come. He's 
going to be present with you. He's going to work through you. There's going to be amazing things to come. But I don't want you to miss this moment, this warning. You're reconciled to God through Jesus, and at that very moment, the world hates you because they hated Jesus. And that's his message to them. It's going to be hard for you if you follow me, is the message from Jesus. Again and again through his ministry, and then at the very end, he leaves them with this warning. The world's going to come after you, and they're going to hate you. You were enemies with God. You're no longer his enemies. So everyone who's still an enemy with God is an enemy of you. And he wants you to be ready for it. And our enemy's good at this. Remember the garden, the betrayal of, of God in the garden by Adam and Eve. The serpent told Eve things like, God wants you to have this, right? I mean, he doesn't want you to be like him, but he wants you to have these things. It's temptation that's a little bit true wouldn't it be better for you to be God than to just be like him look look at the look at the thing here that I have for you the serpent says look at peace don't you want peace take it just take it upon yourself to come after it surely God wants this for you just take the peace and we'll easily follow the flesh and call it peace feels right Seems right. Kind of sounds like the truth. I'll take it. And it leads to condemnation every time. So the opposite of peace is not necessarily conflict, war, chaos, life's storm. It's, it's fear. It's the deception that leads us to anxiety. It's feeling like we have to control everything, but somehow at the same time realizing we can't control anything. That's the opposite of peace. It's not the storm. In fact, you can have peace in the midst of the storm. The Greek word for anxiety translates more directly in pieces. It's fragmented. Frazzled is a good word for it. That's the opposite of peace. So are you feeling anxious about Christmas? Are you feeling anxious about life? Are you feeling in pieces, fragmented? Are there cracks in the wall? Are you struggling to feel whole? The freedom from your anxiety, the peace you desire is only going to be found in Jesus. You can't find freedom from anxiety in an anxious world. And that's the point of Advent. Jesus came to bring it to you. The storm still is here. We're still in the thick of it. But the the God of peace is with us. And, And the Prince of Peace stepped into the war. He accomplished all that we need to obtain righteousness, and by that righteousness, we have peace with God. He warns us then that the war continues. The battle is going to be internal. You're going to fight the flesh day in, day out. Keep crucifying it, and the world's going to come after you. Satan continues to to be around these spaces. He's going to use the stuff and come at you in ways you don't expect, and God's going to allow it. In fact, like we talked about last week, sometimes God knocks out the props so you'll stop hoping in those things. If you think you're going to find peace in your family, you're wrong. Not this peace. But God can bring peace to your family when you obediently follow him. So Jesus finishes this speech with his disciples before he prays in John 17. He says in John 16, verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. He gives them a warnings 
so that in him you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So you're going to have sufferings, but go forward with courage, the opposite of fear. Go forward with peace, the opposite of anxiety. Undivided, we move forward. Seeking shalom, having experienced the person of Shalom, the prince of Shalom. Paul certainly understood this. So this man who was beaten and captured and imprisoned and constantly had his life threatened certainly had peace. In Philippians chapter 1, he shows us his undivided mind, and I want us to take this as our means to have peace. Philippians 1, 20 and 21, he says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So even if the conflict, even if the war claims your life, may Christ be honored. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how we find peace, obedience, devotion, dependence. In fact, it should be that we're so devoted to Christ, it seems that we hate everything else. We should be so connected Our lives, our individual lives should be so about him that everything else pales and falls behind. In fact, in doing this work of devoting ourselves to Christ, all other things are united and true peace can exist within this body, within families, though there is division because they may not belong to Jesus, there can be peace if Jesus is with you. And then he accomplished all that you could never accomplish in his perfect will. And even if he doesn't, Even if all this brings death, it's gain for us because we get to be with him finally free from the presence of sin for eternity. So don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. The God of peace is with you. You can be courageous. Jesus was broken in order that we may be made whole, in order that we may have shalom. On the cross, Jesus lost all his peace that we could have it eternally. And then he rose victoriously. And his spirit is with us. And one day he's coming back, the second advent. He's coming back to get us forever. And until that day and forevermore, he's worthy of our praise. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for your word. I thank you for peace. I thank you for joy. I thank you for hope. I thank you for love. You are faithful always. And I pray that we can recognize that this morning as we continue to worship, as we take communion. May you be praised as we seek peace, as we seek to be a people of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.